Well, good morning. May I just look at you for a second? That was good worship. Powerful songs. If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to get them out at this time or turn on your cell phone if that's the way you interact with Scripture. And if you have your core guide, you can get that out. There's a nice place on the front to take some notes if things you might want to remember to talk with your core groups about. Um, Ephesians chapter 5 is where we'll find ourselves here in, in uh, just a minute. <clears throat> We've been in this series called um, The Wild Goose Chase over the last, oh, I think this is the sixth week. And uh, we get the name from the series, the Celtic Christians had a name for the Holy Spirit, and the name for the Holy Spirit was Ungodagloss. Um, you don't have to remember that, but it won't hurt you. Ungodagloss um, is the, it means the wild goose. There it is. I disconnected on me. Imagine that. And they uh, studied the Holy Spirit, and, and they named it the Holy Spirit, the wild goose, because of, its, because of God's unpredictable nature. You know, kind of, sometimes it's, uh, have you ever had a bird just fly at your face? That's a little unsettling, right? How many of you like, like, if there's a bird in somebody's house just flying around, do you like that? Not me, not so much. Um, but they, they watched the activity of the wild goose, and they just saw this bird that had this nature to it that just go wherever it wanted to. And, uh, and they said, you know, the, the, Holy Spirit is, the Holy Spirit's activity in our life is kind of like that. And so over these last weeks, we've been talking about living a life of holiness, and what does it look like to chase after this wild goose, Holy Spirit, that just goes wherever it will, enters into our life and unsettles things, uh, forces us to think about things that maybe we don't want to think about, maybe brings to our attention things that we thought we had buried in the closet years ago. And the Holy Spirit says, you know, let's go dig around in that closet over there and see what we can stir up. Well, uh, what happens when you become a Christian is we are launched onto this journey with Jesus, with the Holy, with God, and and Jesus refers to this journey as being on the way. That there is a path that we are to take towards Christ-likeness. We throw around the word. We, we talk about the word sanctification. On, on, on occasion. Uh, what does it mean to have a Christ-like character, that, that work that the Holy Spirit does in our life to cleanse us and to, uh, to help us along the way? <clears throat> and I was thinking about the way. Jesus says that it's a very narrow path. And we were traveling in Utah a couple years ago going around and 
seeing multiple national parks. We, lo we love the national park thing. And there's this, this place is in Utah. This is the scenic Byway 12 outside of the Bryce Canyon area. And there is a ridge, this spine of rock that, that goes on for quite a while. And it doesn't look as intimidating in the picture as it does in real life, but there's literally a thousand foot drop on either side of the road. So there's a ditch on both sides, you would say, right? And as we are walking down, or as we are progressing on the narrow path, the, the narrow way that Jesus talks about, uh, in fact, he says, Matthew uh, 7, 13, and 14, uh, broad is the road that leads towards destruction, but narrow is the road that leads towards life. So imagine yourself on this journey on this hogback road, and there's ditches on both sides. Well, in, in the Christian journey, we can label those ditches. If the road is narrow, it suggests to me that there is a, um, there's a protocol, there's a way to live to be able to keep on this narrow road. But if you veer off in one direction or the other, you're going to end in one of two places. And the first ditch that you might end up in in your Christian walk is uh, the ditch of legalism. Because when we are talking about holiness and living a Christ-like life, and we start to interact with Scripture, authors like, well, Jesus, Sermon on the Mount, he gives a, there's, there's lots of do's and don'ts in the Bible, right? All over the place. Commandments, uh, the Pharisees, you know, tried to instill in the people um, and, and make sure that they followed all of the Torah, all of the law. And in fact, they were so law-abiding that they made laws so that, to make sure that they didn't break the other ones. So they practiced like 613 different laws. Well, over time, as you can imagine, sometimes people equate holiness, sometimes people equate living a Jesus life with following a list of rules. You felt like that before? Like there is some criteria that is out there, objective in nature, that is a measuring stick for how holy you are. Have you ever felt like, has ever, church ever made you feel like that? I'm sorry. That's not the intent of the law in the Bible. There's a ditch, thousand foot drop or more, that if you get off this road of holiness, you're going to drive into the ditch of legalism. You'll read passages in Scripture, and you're going to get a long list of do's and don'ts, and you're going to make a little checklist, and you're going to think in your mind, I've got to check all of these boxes off all the time. And if I don't get a box checked, then that means I'm not really living a holy life. So there's a ditch called legalism. Well, if you are uh, driving down the road, and you... Uh, maybe are distracted by something and you hear your tires hit the rumble strip on the one side and you oh that's legalism over there what do you do you you jerk the wheel right and, uh, and now you're gonna go over here and the the ditch 
On the other side of the road is legalism's opposite. This is moral uh, relativism over here. This is, a, this is the ditch where you could say is um, a self-serving individualism. This ditch over here is, uh, you could describe it as, well, the rules uh, only need to be followed if it fits me personally. You know, if this is the right thing for me to do in the moment, then I'll follow the rule. But if I feel like I would be better suited by not following this law, then it's got to be okay. So the other side of the, the, there's the ditch of legalism over here. I have to follow all the rules or I'm not holy. The overcorrection to that is I can do whatever I want because truth for me is doing what feels right in the moment. And nobody else can really be an arbiter or a judge on that because we would all share that similar right. You can do whatever you want. You can do whatever you want. And, and so we have the self-serving individualism and this moral um, ambiguity, ambiguity over here. Does that feel like the culture we're in these days? For a long time, I think the church drove in the ditch of legalism. And our culture cried foul. Not that rules and laws are necessarily bad. They, they need, we'll get to this in a minute, we, we need to have some structure. But it, we need to get underneath that. Why are, why are they in place? And so culture has, we've overcorrected, and we've come all the way, and we've swerved across this road, and now we're in this ditch over here of moral ambiguity, relativism, self-individualism. And, well, both ditches miss the point entirely. They both ignore God's call in our life that we should have a heart change. The motivation of our heart should come from something different, a different place. And God's willing to do that work in our heart and our life so that we can avoid these two ditches and we can travel uh, on the road of, of holiness. So that's, that's all nice and good, Pastor Dave. Um, but how do we stay on the narrow road? Well, Paul gives us the answer pretty straight. So we're in Ephesians chapter 5, two verses. The first two verses of Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says, uh, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That's how we stay on the road the narrow road of holiness. Follow God's, literally, Paul says, imitate God. Hmm. Well, when I write the word imitate on the top of a page, and then I, I write down all of the things that come to mind, the first word that came to mind for me was copycat. Remember back in elementary school, if, if you ever 
you know, mimicked another person. You might get, you might get uh, chastised as, oh, you're just a copycat. You're just doing what they did. You can just take that wherever you want. There's copycat crimes, there's, there's copycat this, there's plagiarism, there's all sorts of ways that we copy one another. But what came to mind for me was um, I love watching kids mimic their parents. And the one that I really like is, um, you know, you're driving down the road and there's a mom or a dad mowing their lawn with a big lawnmower. And, you know, the little tyke is behind with a little toy, plastic one, just mowing away. What are they doing? They're mimicking. They're being a copycat. They're learning a behavior. We learn lots of things by watching other people. We learn lots of things, behavior, skills. Um, we become apprentices with people. And, and what we're trying to do is we're trying to mimic what they do so we can learn the same thing. Uh, I remember when, when Brian was, was small, and every morning when I would get up and, and I would shave, he would come into the bathroom, and he would sit right there, and, and he'd watch me, and, and, uh, and he would want to do everything that I was doing. Use the shaver, you know, put the lotion on the face, and, you know, with the, with the razor. And, and so when I was finished, I'd have to lather up his face and turn the razor upside down and, and you know, and that was a way that he learned about shaving, about caring for oneself, about getting ready in the morning. Paul says, be imitators of God. Do what God does. And if we start paying attention to what God does, then, then that should seep into our life, and, and that's the way that we will go out and we will act and behave in, in the world. It might sound impossible. Be imitators of God. Men's breakfast a couple weeks ago, I, I was thinking through these verses and, and we talked about them for a little bit. And I'm like, what comes to mind when you think about imitating God? What, what are you going to, to mimic? And the words that came up were, well, God is, we believe God is powerful, right? We, we throw these longer words around once in a while. Have you heard the word omnipotent? All-powerful. God is all-powerful. Are, are we supposed to imitate that? How? how I mean, if, if, if Paul is really, if he really means be imitators of God, and we say, well, God is all-powerful, I mean, I don't think we want... A, a whole bunch of people going around thinking they're all, there's enough people who think they're all powerful already in this world. I don't need another one. Be imitators of God. Have you tried to be all powerful or exert even a little bit more power? I mean, getting out of the house in the morning, you know, and organizing things in your workplace, getting people to follow along to, to your agenda. Well, if everybody's trying to be all, how does that... Paul, are you serious? We have to imitate God, and God is all-powerful. Well, then there's another one. The other word that came up was, um, well, we believe God is all-knowing, right? The word that we throw around in church once in a while is omniscient. You heard that one? Well, 
you've met a bunch of know-it-alls before, right? People who think they have all the power in the world, and then you have people who think they just have it all figured out. Is, is that what Paul is wanting us to do? And then, and then there's one more. The, the, if we just keep going on the omni-words, there's the omnipresence. We believe God permeates all things, that God is, is everywhere. Well, I'm, I'm pretty confined to this time and place right here, right? I don't, I don't know what's going on in China right now. I don't have the ability. How, Paul, how are we supposed to imitate God? If he is all of those things, what are, what are, you, what are you talking about? And Paul continues on. He says, be imitators of God. Follow his example. Walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. It, it kind of puts that into context. What are we supposed to imitate? Paul's not saying imitate the attributes of God. He's saying imitate the activity of God. Do what God does. It starts with watching. What is God doing? What do you see him doing in, in our midst here, in, in your family, in your personal life, in, in the community, in, in the world? Where do you see God moving? And, and watch that for a little bit. Read scripture, interact with that, listen to God as a way of, of watching him and learning how to imitate his character. I think one way that we stay on this road, this narrow road of holiness is to to watch God, to pay attention to him, to learn what God expects of you. A few years ago, I had the privilege of um, being uh, the speaker at WF West's baccalaureate service. I get to do this again in a couple weeks. I'm excited about it. And of course, when you speak at a baccalaureate service to a group of graduating high school students, it is a, a service in a Christian context, and so you want, to, you want to feed them the Word of God on the one hand, and, and you, you want to say something that is maybe relevant to life where they're at in the moment. A graduation is a, is a big step thinking about one thing coming to a close and, and then having something new launch. It can be a time of um, excitement, sadness, um, adventure, uncertainty. All of those things are held in tension with one another. And, and I was thinking through something that uh, I struggle with on occasion, and that is managing competing expectations. How many of you feel like somebody else has an expectation of you? Pretty much all of us, right? We go through life and we feel like other people are carrying expectations that we are supposed to accomplish. Teachers, parents, uh, bosses, employers, friends. Um, most people carry a an expectation of, of themselves. And imagine, if you will, for a second, if I, 
had one of you come up here and just stand right in our midst. And we picked six other people to scatter around the room, each representing a different place where you feel like there's an expectation of your life. And imagine that this person here has uh, six ropes tied around their waist. And each person who has an expectation is given the other end of the rope. And then imagine if I said, go, and at the moment I said, go, each person holding a rope would yank on that rope as hard as they could. What's going to happen? If it's evenly spread throughout this room, this person is going to experience a little pain. <laughs> but they're not going to move anywhere, right? But maybe one person is a little stronger and they, they pull, maybe it's an employer who's just yanking that rope really hard and trying to drag you off. And, and you're, you're trying to meet those expectations. But then you have your family who's pulling in another direction and your friends who are over here and they're saying, no, we expect this of you. Do you ever feel like you're pulled in multiple directions based on all of the expectations people have? And sometimes they're opposite. They pull you in different, in different ways. They're competing with one another. Well, how do you manage all of that? So I talked, I talked about maybe figuring out what God's expectations are for us as a way to uh, put in context all of the other expectations. Your employer should have some expectations of you. That's what it means to be an employee. Your family should have some expectations. But when they compete with one another, how are you going to determine which one is the most powerful. And so I think we need to overlay this with God's expectations. Well, how do you figure that out? Well, there's a verse in the Bible that talks exactly about this. It's, um, it's in Micah 6, 8. We've talked about this verse before. Micah says, He has told you what is good. God's already told you. Then he asks this question, what does the Lord require of you? What does the Lord require? And he gives an answer. So if you want to know what God's expectations are of you, write down Micah 6, 8. That's it. It says, God wants you to act justly. Literally, do justice. God wants you to love kindness. God wants you to walk humbly with him. It's three things. Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with God. Well, what does that mean? This idea of doing justice. It means, it means to look out for those who can't look out for themselves. It means to take up the cause of the poor. It means to take up the cause of the marginalized. It, it means to give a voice to those who don't have a voice. And sometimes giving a voice to those who don't have a voice means you have to speak up on their behalf. Do justice. That's an expectation that God has on all of us. 
God's inviting us to be sharers. Um, He's asking us to build a deeper, richer kind of a community. He's asking us to live a life on earth as it is in heaven. Do justice. He goes on, he says, love kindness. To love kindness means that we uh, embrace God's love for us and then we extend it to other people. We talked a lot about this uh, last week. We allow kindness, we allow gentleness and love and compassion to shape our relationship with, with each other. You look for the good in others. Instead of finding the flaw that you might feel compelled to help them fix, maybe to love kindness means to love them first. Befriend them, extend God's goodness and gentleness and mercy, and let God deal with those other things. And it means to walk humbly. God expects us to do justice. God expects us to love kindness and practice mercy. And God expects us to walk humbly with him. When he called the people of God in the first place, that was, that was the criteria of the covenant. I will be your God, you will be my people. You've, you walk humbly with me. I'll do all this, I'll do all of these other things for you. And all I ask is that you follow along, walk with me hand in hand. I, I like that it doesn't say run humbly with God. It says walk. When, when you're training to run, they say, or the experts say, that uh, you should run at a pace where you can carry on a conversation with somebody that you're with. If you keep at that pace, then you're, you're, you're building up stamina, and eventually that pace will get quicker and quicker at which you can carry on a, on a conversation. But if you are walking with somebody, it means that you can have a conversation. So as we are on this wild goose chase, God says, walk with me. Let's go through life together, hand in hand, and let's have a conversation along the way so that I can point out to you the things that I want you to see. You can watch where I'm working over here. You can see how I'm demonstrating love and kindness to this person over here, and if we can talk about it, then maybe, maybe you'll go and participate in that. Paul says, be imitators of God. Watch God. Listen to God. See where he is moving and how he is moving and then let that permeate your soul so that's what comes out of you. We are to do what he does. Well, if we need more clarification um, and we look to scripture, you know, if we want to see a really good example of this, we just simply turn our attention and, and watch Jesus. We, we, watch, we watch Jesus, God himself, coming, in to, coming to earth 
as a human and practicing exactly, exactly what he had wanted us to practice all the way along. And so we see that in verse 2, Paul says, walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. It's interesting to me. Uh, I pay attention to grammar and these kinds of things, and don't check out on me now. But there are three different uses of the word love in that verse. Paul uses the word love as an adjective. In verse, in verse uh, the, the adjective is in verse 1. It says, we are dearly loved children. So he describes us as, as loved. And then in verse 2, he uses love as a noun. We are to walk in love. And then a little bit later, he uses the word love as a verb, just as Christ loved. Now, why would that matter? Am I reading too much into that? I don't know. I don't think so. It seems to me that, that these three forms cover a lot of territory for us. We, we find our identity as the beloved children of God. That's where identity comes from. We live in the realm of God's love. And we experience being loved by Jesus. And in the version of the word love, we have one word for love, love, in our language. Greek has several. One of them is agape love. And agape love is, it's not a feeling, emotional uh, kind of a love. It is a self-sacrificing, self-giving love. This is the, the love that Paul is, is talking about in this verse. Eugene Peterson, he says, the love we practice in this resurrection life originates in God and only in God. All love originates in God's love. God's love permeates all expressions of grace from Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is always personal, never impersonal. It is always on earth as it is in heaven. Never, it's never an abstraction or simply an idea. It is always particular in person and in place. That's what the love of God looks like. That's what God is asking us to imitate. And we see this in the person of Jesus. And so we might watch God to stay on the road of, of holiness, but we also have to, we can't just watch, we have to step forward. Stepping, Jesus always stepped forward. He moved towards people. Disciples, um, people who were broken, hurt, hurting, uh, his disciples, his enemies, he, he always moved closer. To, he, he took steps forward. He didn't take, he didn't take steps sideways. That's kind of just like dancing with the issue, right? Just sideways step like that. And he didn't, you never saw God just backing up. You never saw Jesus 
move away. Jesus is always taking steps forward. And when God fills us with the Holy Spirit, who fills us with his love, and we watch Jesus, we watch God, we see what he does, uh, to imitate him means that we also take steps forward. Think about Jesus' life. Matthew chapter 8, one of his first miracles in, in Matthew's gospel is He's going along, and there's a man with leprosy. Well, if somebody has leprosy back in those days, you don't touch that person. In fact, they, they should be on the outskirts of town. You want to go the other way, because if you were to happen to just brush up against them, then you were yourself rendered unclean. Jesus steps forward, touches the guy. He's not really concerned about what the repercussions are personally for him for touching. He knows that, that this person needs his touch in that moment, and he steps forward in love and forgiveness and heals him. Next chapter over. Jesus is going. He has learned that a little girl has passed away. Mom wants him to come and um, minister to this little girl. He's on his way, stepping forward, and a woman from the crowd who's been bleeding for 12 years thinks, you know, if, if, I can just, if I can just touch Jesus' cloak, then that will be enough. Immense faith. So she fights her way through the crowd, and she reaches out, and she touches Jesus, and he knows, he knows that somebody's touched him. And he turns around, and he takes a step forward towards this woman. He says, your faith has healed you doesn't move away, moves towards, and then he turns around and he keeps moving forward and he raises that little girl to life. Now, you don't touch corpses in that sense. He isn't worried about that. He moves towards people. All over the Gospels, we learn that Jesus moved towards those who were marginalized, those who were enemies, the outsiders. I mean, Zacchaeus, the tax collector, he went right to him. Nobody else liked that guy. He's a thief, crook. Jesus, that doesn't matter. He needs a healing touch. He needs somebody to come alongside. He needs to see mercy and grace and love in action. I'm going to step forward and into that. Jesus calls us to that same way of living. Paul says, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering. As Jesus demonstrated for us what the Christian life should look like, Paul says that his effort in his work in doing that, the love that took him all the way to the cross so that we could be forgiven and relationship restored with God, all of that work was a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. And I want to tell you that as you imitate God, as you go out and are Jesus to people, that work, that effort, God likes the smell of that. You are a fragrant offering to the Father. It's kind of like God likes your B.O. 
when you work up a sweat in serving other people that pleases the nostrils of God the Father. Amen? Amen. Well, we watch God. We step forward in Christ-likeness. But there's also this, um, what do we do with all the rules? What do we do with all the do's and the don'ts that are in Scripture? Certainly, the, the, certainly they are there for a reason, and what is it? I, I think they're in place. I think we have structure in society to give us guardrails. In the walk, in living a holy life, I think, I know just from my own experience and looking and watching the lives of other people, I know that when God comes in and does a work in your life, he will help you live a more virtuous life, a more ethical life, a more moral life, if you will. When I was younger, one of my, we would go to an amusement park on occasion. One of my favorite things at the amusement park was the, the old-fashioned cars. You know, just a little course through a park-like atmosphere, and you wait your turn, and you get in, and you get a steering wheel, and you get to push the gas, right? Are you driving the car? Sort of, right? You're making it go. You get to steer, but there's, there's a, a rail right down the middle, right? And if, if you were to just, oh, I'm not paying it, look at that Ferris wheel over there, and, you know, the steering wheel just got loose, it's going to keep you on the path, right? But if you are trying, you could get to a point where you could learn what it feels like to steer that car, and you could go through that course without hitting the center rail if you're paying attention. I think rules are kind of like that for us. As we allow God to work in our life, as we start paying attention and listen to the Holy Spirit guide us, direct us, as we learn to mimic Jesus, if we look at Jesus' life He's a living representation of what it looks like to follow all of the law that's in the Bible. So it must be possible, because we believe he was 100% human, right? 100% God, 100% human. And if Jesus was able to do that and navigate that without hitting that center guardrail, it must be possible, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can do that. But it takes time. We start to learn what it feels like to steer. By following, they're, they're there in place to put those guardrails on that when we may, our life may just get a little bit sideways. Oh, that's right. God is doing this work in my life and I feel compelled to follow this rule. And, and we learn how to steer. We learn how to live a holy life in this way. It's not about legalism. Checking off a list of rules to figure out how holy I am today. 
I am holy because God made me holy. You are holy because God is doing that work in your life and making you holy. But we also want to avoid the other ditch, thinking that we can just go off and do whatever we want because we're under grace and I should be able to do what I think is right in any given moment. We gotta avoid those ditches and we start to learn this control. But there's the matter of the ground of a hardened heart. And um, I've been thinking about Hosea for several weeks. Hosea says, sow righteousness for yourselves, reap the fruit of unfailing love, and break up your unplowed ground, for it is time to seek the Lord until he comes and showers his righteousness on you. You know, throughout the series, I believe every single thing that I've said. I believe that we find it in Scripture. Sometimes I don't think that we always feel like we can get to that point. Like it's so hard to leave behind the life we once knew, that, that, that God would actually set us free from that. And so our our, when we think that way, our, our hearts kind of harden. We maybe get calloused or apathetic, let negative attitudes start to come in. And, you know, my lawn is really soggy and green right now, but I know in a few weeks when that sun comes out, it's going to bake it solid. The grass is going to brown, and I'm going to wait for fall rain again. When the soil of your heart gets cement-like and, and hardens, it takes a lot of work to till it up, to overturn that dirt. I mean, if you watch them plow the fields in the springtime, there's sharp blades that cut into the soil, and it turns it around, and it flips it over, and it's unsettling, kind of like the work of the Holy Spirit. Maybe it's time for you to plow up the hardened soil of your heart and prepare it and wait on God to come and shower you with his righteousness. We watch God, we step forward in action, we we try and live righteous lives, but it begins with doing this work in our heart of turning up that soil and letting God soak us with his righteousness attending to the means of grace and prayer and scripture study and coming together in public worship. Like these are all things where God showers down his righteousness on us. May I encourage you this morning, just like Paul to the Ephesian church, chapter four, he started off, he says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. God calls us into this very way of life. And he makes it possible for us. I give give you the power of my Holy Spirit. I will encourage you. I will will, um, challenge you on occasion. I will convict you. What I want you to do is open your heart. 
and I'll come in and I will work because I love you and I want you to be the imitators. I want you to be my imitators out in the world so people see a picture of what it's truly like to have a relationship with God. Our worship team is going to come back and, and I want to sing that song again. Um, come thou fount of every blessing. Did you listen to the lyric while you were singing it? It says, come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise. I was lost in utter darkness till you came and rescued me. I was bound by all my sin, were were chained to this former way of living. When your love came and set me free, cut those cords. Now my soul can sing a new song. Now my heart has found a home. Now your grace is always with me and I'll never be alone.